This is the Bible Book Club. And we're in the book of Numbers. Welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. When last we left you in this episodic adventure that we are in in Numbers, that was chapters three and four, and God instructed Moses to finish the census by counting the Levites two different ways. First, by taking count of the males over one month of age, every male would serve the Lord in place of the firstborn son of all the other tribes. And then the second count was the number of the Levite males between 30 and 50 who were mature enough to serve in the tabernacle, which we know was a very big job. And each tribe was assigned specific tasks to pack the tabernacle and to protect it. Okay, so the ordering, numbering, and structuring of the camp is finally complete. The people have been counted for and their purpose made clear. The 12 tribes are going to fight for the land and protect the people. And the Levites will serve in the tabernacle and protect the holy things. So everybody has their orders. These next two chapters provide a few final words on issues of impurity. I know you thought we were done with that in Leviticus, um, but these have to be addressed because it could distract them from the fight ahead of them. So they're kind of an add-on. And if they distracted them, it, it would disturb the camp purity, and they cannot have that camp disturbed right now. Based on how these impurities are inserted here in numbers rather than with the other impurities in Leviticus, we can assume that these may have become common problems in the camp that needed to be specifically addressed. So here's our quick purity review in case you've forgotten Leviticus or were not with us in Leviticus. From season three, episode six in Leviticus, we learned that the Israelites must avoid impurity so that the Lord can dwell among them. That's why it was a focus. Impurity was often natural and not always due to sin. It was not always this bad thing to be impure. It was kind of natural. Now, natural impurity happened often and was not a big deal. It had to deal with health and being clean or unclean, not sin in this case. Minor impurities were easily eliminated by bathing or laundry and weren't contagious. For example, if you touched a dead animal, all you had to do is wash your clothes and, and not be around anybody till nightfall. Now, major impurities required more cleansing because they were contagious. The point is that being impure was not always morally wrong, and people weren't embarrassed about it. They moved in and out of it during daily life. Natural impurities, such as a dead rat or getting your period, reminded the Israelites that the world we live in is out of order from the perfect way it was, the way God created it before their was disease and death before the fall. Now, impurity could also be sin. It wasn't always just like natural things. Sin is another form of disorder. And therefore, theoretically, sin creates dirt and pollution. Each time the people sinned, they became unclean or impure. And all that impurity on all those people in the camp created a polluted community. And the polluted community made the tabernacle unclean. And because God is holy, he cannot be in or dwell amongst them in the tabernacle if it is unclean. So all that ritual in Leviticus was to cleanse the tabernacle with the blood of the sacrifice and cleanse the sinner 
sinner who was made clean from sacrifices and able, therefore, to stand before God again and have a relationship with him. Okay, that's our purity review. Now, here's the purity prep. We're going to talk about these next two chapters. Let's talk first about what this is all about, the purity of the camp. Back to our story, it is time to move and the camp must be cleansed because remember, they're going to face battle and they've got to have God in their midst. Now, the four areas of impurity that are going to be outlined here are in descending order of the number of people affected. So the first impurity concerns the whole community. The second impurity concerns your neighbors or those people you know or do business with. The third impurity concerns the family. And the fourth impurity concerns the individual who has taken a vow. So first, purity in the community. God's going to deal with controlling contamination that might result in an epidemic starting in chapter 5. The Lord said to Moses, command the Israelites to send away from the camp anyone who has a defiling skin disease or a discharge of any kind, or who is ceremonially unclean because of a dead body. Send away male and female alike. Send them outside the camp so that they will not defile their camp where I dwell among them. The Israelites did so. They sent them outside the camp. They did just as the Lord had instructed Moses. Now, this sounds really cruel, but remember that the Israelites are preparing to do battle against formidable odds. They can't have everyone getting sick. And also remember from prior seasons and chapters that there was a way to come back. They had to present themselves to the priest and then he inspected them and then they could come back in. Well, that's what I was thinking. Didn't God already give them this rule? Is it just Moses reminding them that this is something? Because, I mean, the Lord is telling Moses to do it again. So there's a reason, I suppose. Yes, there is a reason. In Leviticus 13, 15, and 19, it gives more details on these three types of impurity. You can go back to season three to listen to that. In those chapters, only skin disease warrants being sent out of the camp. It is thought that the extra precautions here are taken when preparing for war and to contain a possible epidemic, discharges and dead body contamination are added to those who must stay out of the camp for a time. So this increased the kind of elimination of of um, of contamination. And they're going to need every fighting man available um, and the presence of God for success. So they can't take any chances here. It's a big deal. Okay, next we move to purity for neighbors. And this one, God explains how they should make restitution for wrongs. The Israelites must avoid internal battles within the camp. Super important because they cannot waste time and energy fighting each other when they are fighting the Canaanites. I mean, that's just a good lesson in life in general. (laughs) Exactly. We're going to get more of that in Nehemiah. I can't wait. Loving your neighbor means you do not wrong others in any way. And, And if you're not loving your neighbor, you're sinning. And again, that's a form of impurity. So where the other one was more naturally caused impurity, this one is caused by sin. In Leviticus 19, we learned that one of the ways God called the Israelites to be holy was in verse 18 by loving your neighbor as yourself. God is going to clarify here how to make restitution if they don't love well. In other words, how to right a wrong so that peace in the camp prevails. Verse five, the Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, any man or woman who wrongs another in any way and so is unfaithful to the Lord is guilty and must confess the sin they have committed. They must make full restitution for the wrong they have done 
add a fifth of the value to it and give it all to the person they have wronged. But if that person has no close relative to whom restitution can be made for the wrong, the restitution belongs to the Lord and must be given to the priest along with the ram with which atonement is made for the wrongdoer. All the sacred contributions the Israelites bring to a priest will belong to him. Sacred things belong to their owners, but what they give to the priest will belong to the priest. To summarize, if you wrong a neighbor, you need to make it right by adding a fifth to the cost of whatever you did. And if the person and their family are no longer alive, then you give the restitution to the priest. And that makes you right with God and probably with the rest of the clan who probably witnessed what you did. And we don't want any feuding uh, between the clans. Okay, the next one is purity in the family. And this is the biggie. God's going to deal with how to judge accusations of marital unfaithfulness. Another element that could lead to impurity in the camp was undetected marital infidelity because it was a sin and because it caused divisiveness. Nothing drains a person more than the emotional turmoil that results from unfaithfulness. For the strength of the nation, the Israelites must avoid disharmony at home because the homes are located in the camp. And apparently, infidelity was a problem, causing suspicion and jealousy in a notable number of tents within the camp, or it wouldn't have been brought up here. Fidelity was also important because for the Israelites to be unfaithful to a spouse was to be unfaithful to God. Remember, the Israelites are alive because God saved them from Egypt for the direct purpose of becoming a great nation, which means they have been commanded to be fruitful and multiply. And multiplying means getting married and having kids. So if you mess up that marriage, then you're messing up God's great command to be fruitful and multiply. Unfaithfulness to a spouse or God was a sin that made the camp impure. The solution laid out by God is truly unique in the entire Bible for a couple reasons. First, God is going to be the judge. Adultery was super hard to prove, and God was not leaving it up to man's subjective judgment. Second, nowhere else in the Bible does God give the actual words spoken in a ritual. He is literally going to lay out everything there to say and do, which is very unusual. Now, I have a caution for you. As you listen to this ritual, try to avoid the conclusion that this was unfair to women. Ponder instead how God protected the women from a male-dominated culture. This is the test for the unfaithful wife. Verse 11, Then the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, If a man's wife goes astray and is unfaithful to him, so that another man has sexual relations with her, and this is hidden from her husband and her impurity is undetected, since there is no witness against her and she has not been caught in the act, and if feelings of jealousy come over her husband and he suspects his wife and she is impure, or if he is jealous and suspects her, even though she is not impure. The law is concerned with two distinct possibilities. The first is the woman is guilty, but her husband has no proof. The second is the woman is innocent and her husband's jealousy is unjustified. The solution to adultery is exceptionally tricky. This type of camp impurity was much more difficult to diagnose than a skin disorder because of the secret nature of infidelity. 
At the time, adultery was often a death sentence, which put the accused in a very precarious position. A husband could end an unwanted marriage by falsely accusing, or he could use it as a threat for coercion of his wife. Suspicion left to the men could be lethal for the women. Even if a husband loved his wife, suspicion or jealousy would come between them and disrupt the marriage harmony. God could not leave these decisions up to the priests, and it clearly states why. In verse 13, it says this, This is hidden. Her impurity is undetected. There are no witnesses, and she has not been caught in the act. But what could be done to reveal the truth? Well, God intervened to protect not just women, but the family from falling apart over what might be nothing. Just imagine how this test might have played out for real life. For example, the situation between husband and wife has escalated to the point that it is intolerable. Their home is rife with suspicion, accusation, hypervigilance, arguments, and voices raised so loud that every tent within 50 feet is aware of the details of their argument. The neighbors are gossiping with either disdain for this family or with empathy for this family. And the poor children are afraid because their mother could be killed and embarrassed because all of their friends have heard about it. The husband can't take it anymore. The not knowing the truth, the obsessive torture of imagining what might have happened is driving him out of his mind. At the same time, the futility of the wife's situation with no proof of her innocence and the fear of what could happen to her and her children without her is driving her into a dark depression. It is time. For him, the knowledge of the truth will be worth the public humiliation to his family. For her, an end to the fear will be worth the terror of appearing before a priest and the Lord himself. So he takes his wife and an offering to the priest. Picking back up in verse 14, which I already read, and if feelings of jealousy come over her husband and he suspects his wife and she is impure, or if he is jealous and suspects her even though she's not impure, then he is to take his wife to the priest. He must also take an offering of a tenth of an ephath of barley flour on her behalf. Back to our couple, the walk of shame as they walk down the path to the tabernacle. Whispers follow them and a crowd falls in behind them. A priest standing guard at the entrance to the tabernacle hears the husband's accusation. The wife, without even a glance at her husband, kisses her children and leaves her family behind as she enters the outer court of the tabernacle alone. Once inside, the ritual begins. The court of the Most High is in session with the honorable God of Israel presiding. The priest takes holy water and puts holy dust from the floor in the water, which could symbolize several things. The dust adds to the seriousness of the situation by emphasizing that she was standing on the holy ground of the tabernacle. Or the dust was cast on the water as a symbol of the dust that the serpent was cursed to eat in the fall. In Genesis 3.14, it says, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Or third option, the mixing of the water and dust in the vessel 
might be a picture of what is happening inside the woman's body. Vessel can refer to a body. Water symbolizes life and fertility. Abraham's seed was said to be as numerous as the dust of the earth, and God created man from dust of the earth. The priest then unbinds her hair. This is an action of openness before the Lord and could be an expectation of one of two things. The first, for a guilty woman, it would be an expectation of judgment and a sign of mourning. For an innocent woman, it would be a demonstration of the glory of the Lord, a courageous act of femininity in this holy place. Continuing in verse 19, Then the priest shall put the woman under oath and say to her, If no other man has had sexual relations with you and you have not gone astray and become impure while married to your husband, may this bitter water that brings a curse not harm you. But if you have gone astray while married to your husband and you have made yourself impure by having sexual relations with a man other than your husband, here the priest is to put the woman under this curse. May the Lord cause you to become a curse among your people when he makes your womb miscarry and your abdomen swell. May this water that brings a curse enter your body so that your abdomen swells or your womb miscarries. Then the woman is to say, Amen, so be it. This oath would have been a big deal, saying it in the tabernacle on that holy ground. And it reiterates the two possibilities. If she is innocent, may the water that brings a curse not harm her. If she is guilty, the Lord will cause her to miscarry and her abdomen to swell. In other words, the scene of the crime, her womb, will be the place of her punishment. If she is pregnant, she will miscarry and no longer be able to bear children. In the culture of the day, a woman's significance was tied to childbearing. Without children, she is seen as cursed by her people. Now, knowing that you were going to have to stand on holy ground and give this oath would have probably been enough to frighten a guilty woman into confessing, throwing herself at her husband's feet and begging for mercy, because lying in the tabernacle would certainly lead to death. Verse 23, the priest is to write these curses on a scroll and then wash them off in the bitter water. He shall make the woman and drink the bitter water that brings a curse. And this water that brings a curse and causes bitter suffering will enter her. The priest is to take from her hands the grain offering for jealousy, wave it before the Lord and bring it to the altar. The priest is then to take a handful of the grain offering as a memorial offering and burn it on the altar. After that, he is to have the woman drink the water. If she has made herself impure and been unfaithful to her husband, this will be the result. When she is made to drink the water that brings the curse and causes bitter suffering, it will enter her. Her abdomen will swell and her womb will miscarry and she will become a curse. If, however, the woman has not made herself impure but is clean, she will be cleared of guilt and will be able to have children. The fact that she literally drinks in the curse is the climax and final step in the ritual. The priest writes the curse on a scroll, washes them into the already dusty water, and she is asked to drink it. The woman was to hear the words and figuratively take them into her body by drinking them. The water itself is not what was considered bitter. It's the potential consequence of the curse that is bitter. Then she goes home to wait with every man, woman, and child in the clan watching her every single time she leaves her tent for changes in her abdomen. Verse 29. This then is the law of jealousy when a woman goes astray and makes herself impure while married 
married to her husband, or when feelings of jealousy come over a man because he suspects his wife. The priest is to have her stand before the Lord and is to apply this entire law to her. The husband will be innocent of any wrongdoing, but the woman will bear the consequences of her sin. Okay, that sounds a little bad that the husband is innocent, but it simply means he is not held responsible for falsely accusing because if she were guilty, the purity of the camp was at stake. Nor is he held responsible for the consequences if she is found guilty. Protecting the innocent women in ancient Israel, legal matters were administered by men, including initiating marriage, divorce proceedings, and charges of sexual misconduct, which could lead to capital punishment. Women were super vulnerable. So to protect the innocent from inevitable male bias, God places himself as the judge. This is the only instance in the Bible in which the Lord promises to judge and render a verdict by supernatural means. And that right was given to women only. So why is fidelity and faithfulness so important that God would do this? Because it reflects faithfulness in our covenant with God. All throughout the Bible, the marriage relationship is compared to the relationship between God and his people. The principle God is making clear in both relationships is this. Intimacy demands exclusiveness, whether it's with your relationship with God or with your spouse. And exclusivity builds trust. When we commit to a spouse or to God to be faithful, intimacy is built on trust. That is why God commands faithfulness from us. In the Old Testament, the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me, faithfulness. And in the New Testament, the first and greatest commandment is, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Again, faithfulness. When we practice fidelity in marriage, we build trust and trust builds intimacy. When we practice faithfulness to God, we build trust and trust builds intimacy. As our story continues, Israel is not going to get this principle. They're going to be unfaithful over and over and over again. The story is there in black and white as an example to us of what not to do. Do not be like the Israelites. Now, the Washington Institute explained the importance of fidelity like this, and I thought this was a really good summary for this section of the Bible. They said this, the words of promise and covenant in a wedding liturgy are words of faith or fides in Latin. These vows of fidelity to keep faith and trust, to remain faithful, to be true, are also words about reality. They govern far more than marriage alone. In fact, our use of fidelity simply to portray monogamy within the context of marriage betrays our paltry understanding of life as God longs for it to be lived. We are a covenant people bound up with God in Christ by his promises of faithfulness to us and by our feeble but sincere efforts to remain faithful to him. And just as in marriage, fidelity is the mechanism by which we bind ourselves to all of the trust and terms of covenantal life, to all of its responsibilities and limitations, its promises and hope. All right. You asked me to reserve judgment. And so I did. (laughs) 
However, I, However. I, think you, I think you were asking the viewer to reserve judgment, but I really think you were talking to me because <laughs> you know me. And here's my question. It certainly wasn't always the woman who was unfaithful in a marriage. So why Correct. is it only addressed that direction? Why, did there, why is there no, n- nothing to address when a man is the one who is responsible for going outside the marriage? So God is talking to the culture and the culture, including all the cultures around them, were very male dominated. And we're going to see, and we even will we'll see in the next chapter, we're going to go over kind of um, Jacob in a sense, men were allowed to have concubines. So for a man, it was a sin to have um, sex with a married woman, but not to have sex with a concubine. And the difference between a concubine and wife is somewhat subtle, but there was a different standard for men. That's not cool. It's not cool. And it changes. And, and you know, it, it does it does change. But he was talking at this time to the culture. The reason that the Lord would close her room or, or bring that curse on her if she actually had been unfaithful is because the property was given to the clans and then within the clans to the families. And if she, you know, had an affair with somebody outside of their clan, what would become of that son, what would be given to him would really mess up the order. So if she was, in fact, an unfaithful wife, that was going to be the end of her reproduction. However, what I gather really from this law being there is that more often than not, um, God was protecting the women. They were being unjustifiably charged. I really feel like God was throwing out there a fleece to shut the men up. <laughs> Does that make sense? It's kind of like, hey, guys, enough of this accusation just for the least bit suspicion. You're going to have to stop this constant accusation or trying to get out of your marriage um, because, yeah, it would have been rough on the, on the women. They were living under fear. Okay. And that's a much better way to look at it because right. the, looking at it the way I was originally looking at it is really infuriating. But I also feel like I don't want anybody listening to this who is having a hard time having a child Mm -hmm. to think that that is anything that God has brought on them. We all know people who have struggled to have children. And I mean, I, I, I can tell you two of close friends of mine who tried and tried and tried to have kids, started going through the adoption process. And both of them before, right before the adoption was about to happen, ended up getting pregnant. So, I mean, there is still hope for you if you're listening to this. It's not. This was very specific to the purity of the camp. So it's only talking about something that happened back then. And it was a cultural protection of the females. It had really not an application for today other than to illustrate how important fidelity was, how important fidelity was especially in context of our fidelity to the Lord to the Lord today. and to our spouse That's if you are married be faithful today once you enter that covenant you're in a very special covenant um, to your spouse the marriage act is a covenant also and so be faithful to that marriage is important to God even in the New Testament he compares it to Christ the bridegroom being married to the church the bride and so it is a way that we practice our our faithfulness today so it is still very important however this curse was specific just to keeping the purity of the camp just because it needed to be pure for him to dwell among them before they went into battle 
it that this curse does not apply today. Okay. It was a specific incident of that time. All right, let's move on to purity for the individual who took a vow. Right. God explains the rules for those who've been set apart. Now, these people are called Nazarites. It translated, this word means set apart. They were men or women who consecrated themselves to total service to God, usually for a specific time period, but it could, in rare cases, be for life. It was an act of unusual devotion to God. Now, a Nazarite is not a Nazarene. A Nazarene is someone like Jesus from the town of Nazareth. People confuse that a lot. Okay, so let's read what he says about the Nazarites. Chapter 6. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, if a man or woman wants to make a special vow, a vow of dedication to the Lord as a Nazarite, they must abstain from wine and other fermented drink and must not drink vinegar made from wine or other fermented drink. They must not drink grape juice or eat grapes or raisins. As long as they remain under their Nazarite vow, they must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, not even the seeds or skins. During the entire period of their Nazarite vow, no razor may be used on their head. They must be holy until the period of their dedication to the Lord is over. They must let their hair grow long. Throughout the period of their dedication to the Lord, the Nazarite must not go near a dead body. Even if their own father or mother or brother or sister dies, they must not make themselves ceremonially unclean on account of them, because the symbol of their dedication to God is on their head. Throughout the period of their dedication, they are consecrated to the Lord. If someone dies suddenly in the Nazarite's presence, thus defiling the hair that symbolizes their dedication, they must shave their head on the seventh day, the day of their cleansing. Then on the eighth day, they must bring two doves or two young pigeons to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting. The priest is to offer one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering to make atonement for the Nazarite because they sinned by being in the presence of the dead body. That same day, they are to consecrate their head again. They must rededicate themselves to the Lord for the same period of dedication and must bring a year-old male lamb as a guilt offering. The previous days do not count because they became defiled during their period of dedication. Now, this is the law of the Nazarite when the period of their dedication is over. They are to be brought to the entrance of the tent of meeting. There they are to present their offerings to the Lord, a year-old male lamb without defect for a burnt offering, a year-old ewe lamb without defect for a sin offering, a ram without defect for a fellowship offering, together with their grain offerings and drink offerings, and a basket of bread made with the finest flour without yeast, thick loaves with olive oil mixed in, and thin loaves brushed with olive oil. The priest is to present all these before the Lord and make the sin offering and the burnt offering. He is to present the basket of unleavened bread and is to sacrifice the ram as a fellowship offering to the Lord together with its grain offering and drink offering. Then at the entrance of the tent of meeting, the Nazarite must shave off the hair that symbolizes their dedication. They are to take their hair and put it in the fire that is under the sacrifice of the fellowship offering. After the Nazarite has shaved off the hair that symbolizes their dedication, the priest is to place in their hands a boiled shoulder of the ram and one thick loaf and one thin loaf from the basket, both made without yeast. The priest shall then wave these before the Lord as a wave offering. They are holy and belong to the priest together with the breast that was waved and the thigh that was presented. After that, the Nazarite may drink wine. 
This is the law of the Nazarite who vows offerings to the Lord in accordance with their dedication, in addition to whatever else they can afford. They must fulfill the vows they have made according to the law of the Nazarite. So there are lots of examples, not lots maybe, but several examples of the Bible of Nazarites. For example, Samson was thought to be a Nazarite. John the Baptist was thought to be a Nazarite, but both of them had little nuances. So for example, Samson was a warrior, which means he, of course, saw lots of dead bodies. So, But he had the hair thing going. Now, the hair was that symbol that they were set apart and that they had dedicated themselves. The Nazarite had several limitations, including diet, abstinence from wine or fermented drink, appearance, the cutting of their hair, and association, the separating from dead bodies, which really meant like if anyone they knew or loved um, died, they could not go and mourn for them. The long hair was really just to set them apart, and it was just a, a beautiful thing that you did in a time of devotion for God. The fact that their hair grew so long meant to me that it must have been for years, but nowhere could I see that confirmed. Um, so it was just a kind of cool thing they did, like a nun or somebody else would set themselves apart and do something, give up something unusual like marriage, mm-hmm. per se. Okay, the next thing that we're going to read is super short. It's the Aaronic Blessing. I love this. You have probably heard it before. It's beautiful. It's probably one of the um, most symmetrical, pretty poems in the entire Bible. Verse 22, the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. So they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. This blessing is often used as a benediction in churches today. You've probably heard it. The pattern and poetry of the words, though, is what really makes it stand out. First, all three lines begin with the Lord, and the repetition emphasizes that it is the Lord who is the source of every blessing. Then, in the Hebrew translation, the lines actually build visually. The first line has three words, the second line has five words, and the third line has seven words. So it just keeps getting longer. Additionally, if you remove the word the Lord from each of the Hebrew lines, what remains is 12 words representing the 12 tribes of Israel. So remember, this is coming at the end of all this instruction to the 12 tribes about advancing, the census have been taken, they have the order of which they're going to walk out, and then they get this blessing that is three lines long with, you know, three words that repeat and another 12 words, just like there's 12 tribes. It was super symbolic. The length of each line builds in length, but it also builds in the richness of the blessing, culminating with the final blessing of seeing God's face and peace. Now, remember where they are at the base of Mount Sinai, where they have seen Moses march up and down. I hope you were with us in season two in Exodus, march up and down, up and down, up and down that mountain and come down with this glowing face that they were so scared of him about. And his face glowed because he had been in the presence of God. Well, God is so holy and pure 
that to see God's face would kill you. They knew this. That's why they were afraid of looking at Moses' face. He ended up wearing a veil over it all the time because they were so afraid. Remember back then even that God put Moses in a cleft because Moses had one request of God. He said, I just want to see your face. And God said, okay, you can't do that. But he puts Moses in a cleft in the mountain so that he can pass by Moses and Moses can see his back only, not his face. Well, this final blessing, the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace is that hope that they were living for, that hope that we all live for, that day when we can see the face of God without fear of being killed in eternity of peace. We will have an eternity of peace. We will live in the presence of God. And that's why that final verse is so special to them and should actually be so special to us. So now that you know all that, can I just read this blessing over you one more time? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. What's a club without friends? If you're enjoying the Bible Book Club, why don't you share it? And then you can say, welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. New episodes drop every Monday and get all episodes now on Amazon Music. As always, head over to SusanMe.com slash Bible Book Club for show notes from today's episode. Bible Book Club is hosted by Susan Merrill and Heather Rubio, edited by Buck Buchanan, produced by Haley Mawat.